Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for your spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth. Thank you for the message that Cody brought us uh, today, uh, reminding us of the Lord Jesus. Uh, So great to just uh, spend time looking at him and uh, wondering in awe uh, over him. Uh, Would you lead us and guide us tonight as we talk about the tabernacle and what we can learn from that uh, wonderful structure uh, today? Would you do that, please? And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Yes, I know there's something wrong with my voice. Thank you. But that's the way it is. So, 25 through 40, last, oh yeah, redemption, yes. Uh, Last week we looked at the priests. Um, This week, or next week, we're going to look at the sacrifices. Okay, stop, rewind. One of the questions you, you would be asking, if you were an Israelite, you're brought out of Egypt, you, you are now a nation, you're, you're going to the land that God is going to take you, you are going to begin asking yourself, by the time it's in Leviticus, these are your two questions. Your two questions are, how do I approach God? Because in chapter 40, remember, big chapter, chapter 40, God comes to dwell with his people. You have a big question. How do I approach this God, and how do I live with this God? Because I've seen some stuff he's done, and I've heard some stuff about it, and ooh, how do I approach him, and how do I live with him? Three, there's three parts to that. There's priests, there's sacrifices, and there's the tabernacle. We talked about the priests last week. We're going to talk about the sacrifices in Leviticus, and so tonight we're going to talk about the tabernacle. The way the priests went about their business uh, is one of the ways that on behalf of the nation they approached God. There are some lessons for us today, which I think you'll see. It'll be really fun. Okay, the desert tabernacle. There it is. No, I did not make that. That is not my diorama. Uh, That's a really good one, though. Uh, I like it because it has all the parts. You can see there's the uh, the wall around there, the altar of sacrifice. You know, here's the, the altar of sacrifice. There's another rendition of the bronze laver. And then here is the holy place. And then at the very back is the holy of holies. And that's why the glory of God represented by a cloud in this picture is hovering over the, that part. Not, uh, not this part over here. And so here's where you would have come in and you would have... Uh, given your sacrifice here, and if you were a priest, certain things would have happened on certain days, and you would have walked in all the way on the Day of Atonement. So the point of the tabernacle really boils down to this. Um, How did an Old Testament priest, because he is representing the nation, how did an Old Testament priest draw near to God? How did an Old Testament priest draw near to God? Okay, so we talked about the priest. He was going to bring sacrifices, and he's going to do it through the tabernacle. So here we go. I learned some lessons when you read these chapters. I know for none of you probably this is the first time of reading those chapters. Hopefully you really read them again. Remember, you didn't do the fan. Yep, I read them, Bill, 25 through 40. Took me about three seconds. If you read through them and you can, and if you'll read slowly, you'll learn some lessons. Here's some lessons that I learned. We're going to learn some lessons from a few things, and then we're going to walk the path that the priests would have walked and learn some things along the way. But here's some big picture, 30,000-foot flyover kinds of lessons. Lessons from the structure. God gave Moses the blueprints for the tabernacle, beginning with his throne. So starting in chapter 25. Why would he do that? Because God always works from the inside out. His plans were to be followed to the letter. 
lesson. Approaching him, approaching God, can only be achieved by coming the way he prescribes. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus makes very exclusive claims about himself and the access, the way to the Father. Lessons from the cloth. Oh, you're going to love this one. You're like, lessons from the cloth on the tabernacle? Oh, just wait. Here we go. Lessons from the cloth. The high priest's tunic. Okay, so chapter 28, 31 and 32. Chapter 28, verses 31 and 32. Make the robe that is worn with the ephod from a single piece of blue cloth with an opening for Aaron's head in the middle of it. Reinforce the opening with a woven collar so it will not tear. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Hold that thought. The covering of the tabernacle tent, Exodus 36. So you have to go to Exodus 36. 18. Okay, talking about one of the craftsmen. He also made 50 bronze clasps to fasten the long curtains together. In this way, the tent covering was made of one continuous piece. John 1.14. You remember what John 14, 1.14 says, right? Remember that? Okay, I'll read it. John 1.14, so the Word became human, or the Word became flesh, and made his home among us. It says in the Greek that he tabernacled among us. Huh. He tabernacled among us. Now, wait a minute. Why, why would they pick that word? The covering of the tabernacle was made, the, the cloth that covered the tabernacle was made of one continuous piece. There's a very curious statement in John 19, and you've read it, and you're going to say, I've never seen this before. Chapter 19, verse 23 when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Our Lord was the tabernacle. That's why he came to tabernacle among us. And even down to his clothing, one continuous piece of cloth just like the covering on the tabernacle. And you're like, what? Is that? Yes. And not only that, but the high priest's tunic was one piece. Remember how Mary made it? One piece with a reinforced collar. He's wearing the clothing of a high priest and he's wearing the clothing of the tabernacle because he came and tabernacled among us. If you were a Jewish person, back in the first century when Jesus came, what would you have known about the tabernacle? That's where God lived. Right? This is where God lives. He lives in the tabernacle. What is John telling us? He came and tabernacled among us. He, he was that guy. And even his clothing, one continuous piece covered up, but God was inside. Okay, if you don't get that, just think about that. This is amazing. The pictures that God is giving us back here, that then he shows us the 
the other part of this later on uh, in the Lord Jesus' life. Fantastic. Good stuff. Oh, man. Thanks, Bill. That was worth the whole price of admission. Remember, you got everything you paid for so far. All right. Savior's coming. The Savior's tunic. Okay. Lessons from the priest's path. So the Lord himself tabernacled among us, and he was even dressed or clothed like the tabernacle. The priests uh, walked a certain path uh, to, um, to draw close to God, and they went past all these pieces of furniture, which you've, no doubt, you know what the furniture is, but I want to walk you down the priest's path and point out a few things along the way that might, uh, might be interesting to you. So there's three main parts to the priest's path. First, there's the courtyard, which involved the wall and the gate. Then there was the altar of sacrifice. And then there was the bronze laver. These are the things that are in the courtyard. In the holy place, so now you had to go inside the little house. There was the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. So in the holy place, there were three more pieces of furniture. And finally, in the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant, just one piece of furniture. So there are some lessons from the priest's path that we can see from their lives and then apply to us. So here's the, here's the question. How do I draw near to God? The tabernacle. A quiet time journey of drawing near near to God from the perspective of a New Testament priest. We're going to walk the path an Old Testament priest would have walked. We get to look backward through Christian lenses and see some things that those folks would not necessarily have seen, but we who have seen Christ get to look back and see. And I, I put this together for you. Honey, is there a, did you hand out the, the quiet time thing too, the quiet time sheet? Uh, you can use this as a quiet time. I've done this before. Uh, if you're looking for something new or just something uh, a little bit different, you can use this tabernacle journey as a little quiet time. Um, depending on how fast you go, it might take you half an hour, it might take you an hour. This depends on how long you, you go through it. Here's, uh, here's where we would start. We would start in the courtyard. We'd start at the wall and the gate. So remember there was um, a fabric wall around the entire assembly and there was bases and wooden posts, and they would have had to pick all this stuff up and transport it any time they moved. And then they'd set it up again, and then they would uh, use it. So the wall and the gate. The courtyard wall was seven and a half feet high, roughly. Seven and a half. Well, that's very interesting. Here's why that's interesting. The wall reminds me that no one but God could see all of the priest's work. If you're an Old Testament priest, no one but God could see all of the priest's work. Reminds me today that some of the most crucial steps of my walk are taken where only God can see. For instance, time spent in his word, time spent in prayer, some acts of service. There are things that an Old Testament priest would have done that were off limits to the rest of the people of Israel. And things today that you and I do as New Testament priests where only God can see what we're doing. The gate... The gate reminds me to be grateful for Jesus' invitation to follow him. Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. 
Where do you think they got the idea for enter his gates with thanksgiving? Go into his courts with praise. From the tabernacle. Go into the gate. It reminds me that I can thank Jesus for what he's done in my life. First thing was Jesus met me where I was. He didn't ask me to become something else. He didn't say, clean up your life. He didn't say, be good first and then come to me. He met me where I was. And I can praise him for who he is. So I can thank him for what he's done. And I can praise him for who he is. What he's done and who he is. Thank him for what he's done. Praise him for who he is. Psalm 103, verse 8. A great verse. If you're looking to start a scripture memory, this is a great verse. Shows up all over the Old Testament. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love or in loving kindness. It's a great verse. As you think through the gate, and Jesus invited you to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. As you're starting on this little quiet time journey, if I were an Old Testament priest, I would have walked through the gate and I would have given thanksgiving and I would have given praise. As I'm coming through the gate, and as you, a New Testament priest, follow the same path as you enter the gate, go in with thanksgiving. Go in with praise for him. It's a great way to start a quiet time is to go in with thanksgiving and praise. So the gate reminds me to be grateful for Jesus' invitation to follow him. First place I would have gone, or the big first piece of furniture I would have run into here, is the altar of sacrifice. Big giant thing, uh, covered in bronze, always a fire going. The altar of sacrifice moves me to humble awe as I reflect on Jesus' loving sacrifice for me. So an Old Testament priest would have put several sacrifices to begin the day. Remember we talked about that last week. I would have started off with a sin offering and then there would have been a burnt offering and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For us, as we hit the same place, the same altar of sacrifice, but when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Only his blood, Jesus' blood on the altar, makes me fit for fellowship with God. A priest in the Old Testament had no other hope, no other way to approach God than through blood sacrifice. Guess what? You and I as New Testament priests don't have any other way of approaching God except through blood sacrifice. Whose blood? Jesus How good was his blood? Sometimes you think, gosh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe he didn't get that one. Or maybe, you know, tomorrow something happens. And what does this say? I'm not making this up. This is from the Bible. (laughs) Okay? Because by one sacrifice, what was that one sacrifice? Him on the cross. He has made perfect How long? Perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. We're being conformed into his image daily. But what has he already done? He's made us perfect forever. Is he going to change his mind tomorrow? No. He already said, I'm making you perfect forever by this one sacrifice. Amazing what this one, the Lamb of God, the power of his blood and what that's done for my fellowship with God. It's the only way a sinner can have fellowship with a holy God. The altar of sacrifice. The altar also reminds me to imitate the heart attitude of Jesus, God's ultimate servant. You remember that Paul wrote this, And so, dear brothers and sisters... 
I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will accept. When you think of what he, meaning Jesus, has done for you, is this too much to ask? From Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What is Paul asking us to do in light of what Jesus has done for us at the altar? Become a burnt offering. Climb up on the altar every day and be wholly consumed in his service. There's only one problem with living sacrifices. They crawl off the altar. In light of what Jesus has done for us, what does he ask in return? Bill, tomorrow morning, climb up on the altar and offer yourself up as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice for me. I gave everything for you. Will you give, will you surrender to me? Will you submit to me? Will you hold nothing back from me? Be a living sacrifice to God. So I'm reminded it took blood on the altar for me to have fellowship with God, for a sinner to have fellowship with God. I'm also reminded at the altar, this, this reminds me of Jesus' attitude. He gave it all. He held nothing back. So I would have come through the gate. First thing I would have hit was the altar. Because unless I deal with my sin and get and there's blood applied on a, a sacrificial blood, I cannot approach God. Can't go any further. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. Next thing I would have come to is the bronze laver. This is one depiction of it. There's a million different depictions of it. Uh, it was probably made from polished bronze from the mirrors of the Egyptians. And so, as I looked into it, what would I see? I would see myself. Just like I do when I look in a mirror in the morning. I look at myself. The labor reminds me of my need for cleansing before drawing nearer to God. How can I keep going in this little journey? There's already been blood applied to the altar of sacrifice. What do I need now? Daily cleansing. And the Lord reminds us, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Remember what Jesus told Peter at the Last Supper? I'm going to wash you. Let me wash your feet. And Peter said, no way. (laughs) Don't do that to me. And then Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What is he reflecting on? I'm about to go to the cross as the lamb. I'm going to climb up on that altar. There's going to be blood on the altar. What are you going to need, Peter? You need some daily cleansing. And then Peter says, well, give me a bath, right? (laughs) Wash me head to toe. And Jesus says, you've already been washed. All you need now is daily cleansing. Remember, the priest was washed once. With that, we talked about that last week. Just washed once. But what did the priest need every day? Daily cleansing. I like this. It may not have looked like this, but I like this. Uh, because there's a place to wash his feet. I don't know about you, but if I even keep my hands clean a day, it's a miracle. But if I walked around in sandals or barefoot, there's no way to keep my feet clean. So I needed to have my feet washed. When? Every day. And so I like this little picture of this bronze uh, laver because I can wash my feet. These are, the, these are the foot washings, 1 John 1, verse 9. The foot washings. Some lessons from the courtyard as I'm doing this in a quiet time when I 
go on my devotional journey, in the courtyard, I remember that it's about my attitude. It's a time of transition. Am I ready to see the king? If you are going to go meet, I don't care, you pick your favorite president, okay? I'm not even going to name one. You pick your favorite president. If you had an appointment with that president tomorrow, let's say at, I don't care, 4 o'clock, when are you going to start getting ready for that? <laughs> Most of us probably the night before. What am I going to wear? <laughs> you know, I'm probably not going to take a shower until noon. <laughs> I'll probably get muddy or dirty or something in between. I mean, I am going to be very thoughtful and careful before I go meet with my favorite president. How much more does the King of Kings, the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and how quick am I to, hi, Daddy, this morning, I need this. Thanks. In Jesus' name. And I'm out the door. I know you sinners. I know that's what you do. That's why I said this is a devotional journey and it can take you some time because in the courtyard you've got to transition from if you get up early, I get up early, and if I don't hit my email first, it sticks in my brain. So I can't get, I can't get ready for a devotional until I handle my email. That's why some of you, if you ever get an email from me, don't look at the time. Because people go, what are you doing up that early? When you can't sleep, you get up and you do email. <laughs> I got I to gotta get rid of those things, and then once those things are out of my brain, now it's time, it's a transition, and I've got to remember, who am I approaching here? I'm not just approaching my favorite president. I'm approaching someone far beyond and I'm guilty of rushing into the throne room quickly. In the Old Testament, they helped slow me down because I had to do certain things in order before I could even go into the little house. Great idea. It's really a time of consecration and engagement. If I'm beginning with thanksgiving and praise and I hit that altar and I'm reminded of what it took to bring me fellowship with the God of the universe. And I'm then reminded, and he says, Bill, look in the, look in the bronze laver. Oh, okay, wow. Ah. Deal with your sin, Bill. Deal with it. Confess it. I know all about it. <laughs> you know all about it. So let's have a chat about that real quick. Let's get that washed off. Because you're not ready to take any more steps toward me until we get that part done. So there's really a time of consecration and engagement with the process. I'm going to see the king. It's a place where I sometimes just have to linger until my attitude is appropriate. You know what I mean? I only see about four heads nodding. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just need to hit pause. And whatever else is begging for your time, you need to say, you just wait a minute. I'm going to go talk to Daddy. So I draw near to God when I can approach him as a humble, attentive servant. That's when I can draw near to God. Basically, when I have Jesus' attitude. By the way, he got up early in the morning. Maybe you've read that. So those of you who do your devotionals at night, I'm just saying. <laughs> Jesus got up in the morning. So we've gone through the gate. Entered his, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I'm confronted with the sacrifice, the blood on the altar it took for me to have a relationship and fellowship with God. And he says, 
hey, Bill, you've been washed as a priest, but let's take care of the daily dirt. Now, if I were a priest, I could continue to walk in here. And so every day I would walk in, if I was a priest, I would walk in, and one of the things that would grab my attention inside this uh, little room was the golden lampstand. And I don't know that you've ever thought about this before. How many layers of cloth and hides, remember you, you just read it, one of you knows the answer, how many layers? No, it's not one, but it is a prime number. Three. That place was dark inside. There's only one source of light in that dark room. What is it? The lampstand. Oh. If you're an Old Testament priest, you didn't quite know what was going on. We know what's going on. Who's being pictured? Jesus, the golden lampstand. The lampstand reminds me that I am to display his light to a spiritually dark world. I walk into the dark, and if it isn't for this lampstand, which was to be constantly trimmed, filled with oil, and doing its thing, that thing was never supposed to go out. If I were a priest, I was supposed to tend it and make sure it didn't ever go out. Listen to what Jesus says about himself, John 8, 12. I, Jesus, am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John writes this, walk in the light as he is in the light. 1 John 1, 7. Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world. I get into the tabernacle, into a dark room. The only thing giving light in there is the golden lampstand. The only thing giving light in there is a picture of Jesus reminding me. It's why I came. I came to give light to a spiritually dark world. I would have looked to the other side. I would have looked to the north side. The lampstand was on the south. Oh, somebody asked this morning, or, or, what is this? It's night. The tabernacle faced east. Why? I don't know. Probably because the sun came up in the east, and Jesus is the bright morning star, and so that comes up in the east. So there's probably some good reasons why it pointed east. But it pointed east. So if you would have come in, uh, if you would have come in the east, on your left would have been the lampstand, and on your right would have been the table of showbread. And that would have had, as you remember, 12 loaves of bread. Were they stacked this way? I don't know. But there were 12 loaves of bread, or little, uh, um, pitas, you know, like little pitas, little pita breads. They might have looked like that. I don't know what they looked like. But there would have been 12 of those, one per tribe, so that all the tribes are represented in there. The table of showbread reminds me that I am to feed hungry souls his word. Jesus says in John 6.35, I, Jesus, am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and then he reminded the devil in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's reminding me of being spiritual light in a dark world. And he's reminding me that he alone is the bread that feeds. It's about him. He's the light. He's the food in the middle of this dark place. If I would have been a priest, I would have kept walking as I would have tended to the lampstand. I would have tended to the bread. I would have hit the altar of incense 
which was right before the curtain that took me into the Holy of Holies. The altar of incense reminds me to pray for what's most important to God. Therefore, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely. There's that, there's that kind of phrase again. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Some of the reason you and I are still saved (laughs) is due to the intercession of one person who stands at the right hand of God and not one of his words ever fails to connect with the ear of his father. When you think, what is God doing to me? I don't know, but I know who does know. It's Jesus, and he's praying for you in your specific situation or circumstance. And he doesn't have to wonder if his dad's going to hear it. He's absolutely convinced he will. John writes in 1 John 5, 14, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There's a spiritually dark, hungry, and dying world out there. What does God want us, what did he want his people to be a part of doing? Remember, they were to be a light unto the Gentiles. What are we to be? A light to the Gentiles. What are these things that are most important to him? He wants us to be part of bringing that spiritual light. He wants us to be part of bringing spiritual food to starving souls, which would describe you or me before we came to Christ. He wants us to be engaged in kingdom causes with him, not just stuck heads down in our own world. I know that doesn't happen to you. It happens to me from time to time. I get moving so fast and I just put my head down and I can block out spiritual light, spiritual food, what? Pray and ask you for these things? These are, this is what's most important to you? That's why you have me pause and pray right here? Because of the light, because of the food? And now you want me to pause and pray? What do you want me to pray for? Maybe I should pray for light and food. <laughs> what a good idea. He wants us to be engaged with him in his mission in the world. So I learned some lessons from the holy place. If I were walking this in my devotional journey, in the holy place, it's about communion. In the courtyard, it was about attitude. Now it's about communion. It's a time for re-catching God's kingdom vision. It's a time for putting his agenda, what's close to his heart, Ahead of my agenda. It's a time for lifting my eyes and focusing outside my world toward his world. And so I draw nearer to God when I embrace again his kingdom causes as my own. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. How long, that's my paraphrase of it. How long will I keep walking past and over dead people in my day? Is that what they are? Yes. They are spiritually dead people. How much longer will I continue to walk past them or walk over them or ignore them or pay them no attention and no mind whatsoever? If I've, if I've caught, in the, caught the vision again inside the holy place, I have to be light in a dark world and bring food for starving souls. And I'm to pray about that. That's his mission. That's what's on his mind. And he built a whole little tent to remind me 
of what his mission is about. If I were the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, I would go back behind this final curtain into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. This is such an interesting piece of furniture. Uh, The seat, as you know, this is called the mercy seat. You hear a lot in the Old Testament about being sheltered under his wings. Where am I sheltered under his wings? Right there. That's where he sits. There's his throne. This is the throne room. This is his little sort of portable palace. And this is the throne room. And this is where he resides. Right here. On the mercy seat. Sheltered beneath his wings. Interesting. How many angels were present when they went in to see Jesus, and he's not there anymore, right? One account, there's some angels on the rock outside. Another account, you go inside the tomb, which is empty, and there's an angel where his head was, and there's an angel where his feet were. And you've never connected. (laughs) That was the mercy seat. That's where the blood of the lamb was applied right there. Oh, baby. Thanks. I finally got some response. Your coffee's kicked in. This is such amazing stuff. So the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark reminds me that God is totally and completely committed to his glory and my good. John writes this, he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2. Propitiation, very strange word, doesn't show up many times in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament, in fact it only shows up once in the New Testament right there. Propitiation means to turn God's wrath away. Why does God have wrath? What does he have wrath toward? Sin and those who walk in sin. Eek. Where did you and I used to stand before we were invited to follow Jesus Christ? Oh, gosh. Under wrath. Thanks be to God for the mercy seat. Because propitiation has been made. God's wrath was turned to his son and fully executed against his son. How much wrath remains? Zero. That's why he never looks at you with wrath. Because his son has absorbed all of it. Not one penny remains to be paid. Not one penny. His son fully and completely forever absorbed God's wrath against you in Jesus so that he can do good to you all the days of your life. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who who does this apply to? The whole world. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples. Who is this message for? Everyone. Peter writes this. Cast all your anxiety or all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Why does he care for me? Because every ounce of wrath has been turned away and he has nothing but love and grace and mercy and kindness and goodness to direct to you. And so Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things, all these other things will be added to you as well. Do you think that applies to the tabernacle? Perhaps. Jesus says, get your priorities in line with mine. Seek first my kingdom, my mission, my stuff. And I'll take care of the rest. Walk with me. Lessons from the most holy place. In my devotional journey, in the most holy place, it's about him. It's about God. And my anxieties, cares, and needs. It's a place of face-to-face intimacy with God. If I were the high priest... And there is folklore that attests to this. Uh, they, would have, they tied a rope around the high priest's ankle once a year. Because on the Day of Atonement, he went in basically to find out if God was going to give them another year to, to, to pay their sin debt. So year one, they've got one year of sin on their sin credit card. Year number two, now there's two years of sin on the sin credit card, and the high priest would go in with the blood and do the thing. And what if God said, nah, I don't accept it. Poof. Where's the high priest? He's behind the curtain. And guess what? If you went to try to pull him out, guess what would happen? So they put a rope around his ankle so they could pull him out. Just in case, in case God ever says, I don't accept it, they can pull them out. But imagine if you were Aaron, and the first time you go in there, I mean, there's the cloud. There is God sitting on his throne. And you go up and you're like, oh. You are face to face with God. He had reason to be afraid. You and I do not. Why? Because there's been blood applied to the mercy seat. And there is no wrath left. There is only grace and mercy and love and kindness and goodness. In the most holy place, it's a place of face-to-face intimacy with God. It's a place of safety Rest, trust, and peace. Where I turn my time, my circumstances, my loved ones, my energy, my resources, my love, my fears, my life over to Jesus Christ. Say, when you bought me, you bought me lock, stock, and barrel. I have been in God's presence when I've left all my cares in his care. And each one of you knows this. How do we term that these days? Peace. I can't tell you why. I'm just at peace. But the circumstances haven't changed. I'm at peace. Because I've left everything with him and I am wholly his. He can do with me as he chooses. I have been in God's presence when I've left all my cares in his care. The tough part is not picking them up on the way back out. If you were going to use this as a devotional journey, and as I said, I have, I draw near to God when I can approach him as a humble, attentive servant, when I have his son's attitude, the perfect servant, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or fought over, but let it all go 
so that he could come face to face with sinful man and save us. When I have that attitude, I draw nearer to God when I embrace his kingdom causes as my own. When I embrace his son's agenda of bringing light, spiritual light, spiritual food, and prayer to bear on God's mission on the earth. And I've been in God's presence when I've left all my cares in his care. And I'm blessed to receive his son's peace. Remember the disciples are troubled when he tells them that he's leaving them? What does he tell them? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I give you my peace. When I have his son's attitude, I've drawn near. When I have his son's agenda, I'm nearer still. When I've been able to leave everything with him and leave with a peace that passes understanding, I've been in his presence. This is a great little journey for you to go on sometime. Uh, I'd encourage you to do it. It'll mean a lot to you. For next week, read Leviticus 1 through 7. If you've never read Leviticus, the only thing you know about Leviticus is what you learn in Sunday school. And for some of you, that was a few years ago. I encourage you to read Leviticus 1 through 7. Don't leave it all until next Sunday at 5 o'clock. It's going to take you a little bit. It's a little bit of, it's kind of like eating sawdust. But that's okay. We're going to walk through it. You're going to see it. You're going to like Leviticus after we finish it. Leviticus 1 through 7. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Uh, He, through the picture of the tabernacle, uh, is even more amazing uh, than we can than we can imagine. Um, Thank you for these pictures of him and of his work that you gave so many thousands of years ago that we got to see how they were fulfilled and then looking back on how the Lord fulfilled them, it encourages our faith. Uh, It encourages us to take you at your word. It encourages us to continue to Be your servant and to lay everything we have at your feet and to be the servants and the priests that you have called us to be. Thank you for your long suffering with me and perhaps with some of my brothers and sisters. Uh, You're so kind and so gracious. We love you. We thank you. And we pray that you would continue to work in us this week. Make us a little more like Jesus this coming week than this past week. I pray you do all of those things in Jesus' name. Amen.